up my own father uh, as uh, I called him dad. And uh, I owe so much of uh, everything that I have to him. And he passed away when I was uh, about 19. And um, if you're so if your if your father is still with you with us i highly highly encourage you to uh reach out and express happy father's day and have a phone call you know while you, no. while while you can so don't take, don't take it for granted I read an article, uh, I read an interview you did uh, talking about your father and how he would take time with his um, auto mechanic clients. Yeah. And uh, it was a great tribute. So really, really insightful. I enjoyed that. Thanks. Yeah. Well, the I remember the the interviewer asked me kind of the, what, what he was asking me what I learned and, you know, the most important things I've ever learned. I thought, well, I one of the most important things I ever learned was just watching my dad and how he did what he did. And, uh, yeah. Uh, you know, and it was kind of the learning without knowing you're learning, you know, when you're that, when you're that young, you're, you're learning it unconsciously, which is often kind of the most powerful learning you can do when you're, um, did you say 19 years old? Huh? Did you say 19 years old? When I was 19, he passed away. Yeah, but I mean, I I, I, I I was kind of his shadow from the time I was like, you know, I, from four until, you know, uh, and then just, and you, be, yeah. You, you came to Japan in 19 too, right, you say? Yeah, I came to Japan around the same time. Yeah, when I was 18, yeah. Oh, so you were here when he passed on or were you mm, with him? Was I in Tokyo? No, the day he passed away, I was back in um, San Diego. My sister called me in the morning. She was with him when it happened. He he passed of a heart attack. And this is, here's the sad thing. I say I share all this because in case you find yourself in a similar situation uh, down the road with a parent or a loved one, you know, his doctor had told him that his heart wasn't good and he needed to take better care of himself. And I thought, oh, yeah, I'm, you know, I was 18 at that time. And I was like, oh, yeah, I should start taking you to the gym and going for walks and changing life because the doctor said if you don't change you might not be around for another year and um it was like um what can i say um um it was like um yeah well i was so young and he's dad you know like he he's the one who calls the shots not me like what am i to tell my dad he needs to take less time at work and go for a walk right and then Sure enough, year later, yeah, just hit him one morning. He passed out, and you know, Monday, it was Monday morning. And Monday mornings, you know, you look at the data around heart attacks. It's like this huge, it's astro, you know, it's this statistic anomaly how many heart attacks happen on Monday mornings, especially for men. And uh, his he died at forty nine of a heart attack. His dad died at forty nine of a heart attack, and then that's why I did twenty three and Me because there's a gene that you can track down to see if you inherited the the you know, that a particular gene responsible for that. Luckily enough, I don't have that one. Um, and at the same time, it, that fundamentally changed my life. Like I, I've intentionally avoided overworking myself or and mm. putting myself in any situation. And I've taken much better care of my diet and exercise and all that, yada, yada. But um, 
you know, I still feel like he's uh, watching my journey and uh, kind of driving the simulation from the back seat <laughs> in a weird way. And uh, this is this is that concept of you know when they talk about autonomous and can it be hacked. This is the programming that happens. It's that core value system. It kind of goes back to what I was saying is that you're very cool. You're very chill. And it's it's your dad. It's what you learned from being around uh, other people, you know. Yeah, you know what else, though? Is if, you, if you've not had <clears throat> a parent pass or, you know, somebody super close to you pass away, it changes your life very fundamentally in ways that you can't imagine before. and it changes your value system change and in a yeah so it's wild completely changes your life when your when your first parent passes away and and it's it's whew, so my so my heavy. mother passed away in yeah. january last year too a yeah. few days before i touched down in singapore so i was not with her yeah but i was in time for the funeral but it's okay yeah, but he she's very lucky. She she passed on before COVID took over the world. So. Yeah, and then with COVID this year, so, I mean, yeah, we're yeah. a lot of people lost a lot of loved ones in the past year. And let's let's move it to the first kind of headline. The uh, yeah, the, well, the, this this uh, variation, the Delta variation, which is creeping up and kicking Asia Asia's ass, is now getting into Israel, where they're reporting two new kind of spikes in, in one of the most vaccinated countries in the world. And one of the countries who's done the best of fighting it, you know, kind of from, from the start. And uh, I think the, the U S needs to be particularly mindful of this, especially the, the parts of the U S that felt, you know, that they didn't need to be so concerned about it. Come on, come on, Tyler. It's over here. Come on, it's over. <laughs> we're all partying again. Yeah, on that point, I'll just say this out of love for my American friends that in the in Thailand, in Vietnam, Taiwan, we never really had COVID because we actually controlled it from the get-go. And this new variation is far less controllable given the ways that we've controlled it in the past, repeatedly controlled it, managed it in the past. And this one is just far more tricky to control. So I think it's going to kick America in the ass uh, if it if people don't uh, proactively get a jump on the vaccinations. They're going to pay. They're going to pay. <laughs> there, are, there, are, there are pockets of the U.S. around the country that, that are very low vaccination rates and yeah. And uh, everyone's out partying now, so it's really scary. It, it, I take no pleasure in saying we're going to see a textbook definition of comma, uh, karma unfold. And just it, it's all uh, well, it wouldn't be so concerning, except we had a headline here about uh, yesterday, I believe it was from Dr. Danish about the um, what do you call it? The there's now kind of a brain. Long. Permanent brain. Yeah, there, there's brain implications. Long COVID. Yeah. Yeah. Long COVID. And yeah. even though, you know, it, it's almost like the ghost of Donald Trump because this was made into a partisan thing. And now you're seeing places where people, you know, uh, often along political lines, I hate to say it, but are lagging behind in vaccinations with the Delta variant creeping up. It, it's kind of kind of scary. Yeah, exactly right. And uh, let's let's hope everything works out well and. 
I mean, the, the irony is those same people are taking the position that they're adults. They got their big pants on. It's up to them. They can make decisions for themselves. Okay, fair enough. <laughs> Let's see how it goes. Um, I just wish they had a more of a global perspective and see what hap what's been happening in Taiwan and Vietnam and Thailand, where we've been so good about it up until uh, this new variation, which is a whole, it's a different, it's a, it's a different animal, especially in apparent, I'm assuming on this part, but the warmer climates now, um, and the Southern part of the U S is particularly warm at the moment. And there's a particularly a lot more indoor, uh, air conditioning stuff going on of which there's been many, uh, suggestions that that's, uh, an ideal environment for, you know, spreading, uh, inside of air conditioned environments. So it's, it's strange. We'll see how it goes. Let's just hope for the best. Um, and the, the more interesting breaking news and I guess Jane hasn't uh, been able to join us, um, is that um, we were just over in the Politics Media 101, Medium Politics 101. I always get that confused. But um, Jeff uh, was running the show there today. And I often share one of the last headlines before we all jump in here, as they did. Uh, and what I shared there and what I'm about to share here is, and let's get Harry up on stage. This He might be relevant to this. Is that... Um, there was a uh, an individual named Nathan Law in Hong Kong, who's a pro-democracy activist in Hong Kong, and was elected as the youngest lawmaker in Hong Kong at the age of 23 and a Yale graduate. Very well known. He was also one of Times 100 People of the Year. Very well known in Hong Kong. Anyways, he had a website, and the it was he used wix which is kind of this platform where anyone can make a website rather easily no doubt you've seen some of these ads uh to try building a website on wix which he did and hong kong um didn't the government didn't like harry's website or nathan's website and so they told wix to take it down the interesting thing about that is that wix is located in israel it's an israeli startup and Wix did take it down. And Nathan, uh, being a lawyer, contacted Wix uh, with the receipts and said, yo, uh, I live in a, uh, a democracy and here's <laughs> I did nothing illegal of any kind, you know. And so, uh, yeah, what's up? And so Wix uh, reinstated his website and apologized and said it was a mistake. Interestingly, and that's Nathan is... Uh, obviously connected with my friend Jane, who's joined us here a few times, even recently, where we discussed how she is able to break all kinds. She breaks more news in tech than any single person. And in fact, more than most tech publications combined. She's constantly breaking all of the upcoming features of all of the most popular apps. And then Jane on Twitter uh, today was saying that now that Wix has restored Nathan's website, saying that it was a mistake and apologizing. She said it wouldn't be surprising now if Hong Kong blocks access to the website locally by request, by re demanding that the internet service providers do so, essentially blocking Wix from posting, making the page publicly viewable within Hong Kong, which... It then and then a few hours later, exactly eight hours ago from right now, 
she updated her tweet. Yep, as expected, the site is now banned in HK at the ISP level. And that is very concerning, my friends, because that is the beginnings of the internet in Hong Kong being done in this in a similar manner to the Great Firewall of China of mainland China, where they don't have the free open internet. And the evolution of that is uh, worth remembering because it started in the exact same manner where there was content that China initially was on the open internet. They realized, ah, there's content that we don't like. Let's block it at the ISP level as they just did in this case with Wix. And then they realized, ah, there's way too many sites to block and there's always new sites and we can't always play whack-a-mole endlessly forever with a billion web pages. So we need to start over and just start uh, approving websites that we approve of and everything else will be blocked by default. Any new thing that's wha uh, any new moles are outside of our walled garden and uh, we will, you know, work on a approved only list. And so that's how it's very function. That's how it's, uh, they're able to keep very tight controls on every, uh, the internet within China. And um, so we now are seeing the beginnings of, uh, in Hong Kong, um, the slippery slope towards Hong Kong no longer being part of the Western internet and being kind of brought into the Chinese mainland, a great firewall of China, as it's referred to, which means bye-bye Twitter and Facebook and Clubhouse, by the way, uh, and um, all of the Western websites that exist outside of China. Um, and that uh, that's a very sad, slippery slope that they just took some early steps on. Uh, so it's going to be fun, not fun to watch how that unfolds in the in the days to come. But that nobody's covered this yet. No tech journalist has, although they will soon because every tech journalist follows Jane. Um, so I, I suspect some tech journalists are writing this story as we speak about uh, the beginnings of Hong, you know, the Great Firewall of China expanding beyond mainland China, which, by the way, it's not it's safe to assume that it won't stop at just Hong Kong. Um, uh, it, clearly, it's in Xinjiang region and it will stretch. It'll be it's all, you know, people have wondered also, will will China perhaps include it as part of trade negotiations with you know, Pakistan, for example, which is uh, is a bordering country that they have incredible economic uh, ties to because it affords China to have access to the Arabian Sea through one of their neighbors. So they've invested incredibly heavily into Pakistan specifically so that they can have, you know, um, routes and, and BRI and oil pipelines from the Arabian Sea through Pakistan into the back door of China through Xinjiang. And, and Mm, yeah, with, with if they start investing incredibly heavily into a region, they might uh, require one of the conditions to be, uh, how about we uh, do all your 5G for you as well while we're at it? And oh, by the way, it's part of this uh, our version of the Internet, <laughs> which is so much better. It's, uh, you know, it, it'll be very it's very interesting to see how that plays out because by the crypto, the, the, uh, their own digital currency as well plays into this in a similar way where they're testing that in Hong Kong as well. Uh, as it was reported about a week ago, it's, um, so interesting stuff, interesting times. Any, it, any, any, it, go ahead. It Harry. Also, yeah. It also ties into the recent news about Apple daily, right? There's, oh they, yeah, they exactly right. Exactly yeah. right. Yeah, because uh, thank you for reminding me. So what, what Harry's pointing to is 
there is a publication called Apple Daily, the the founder of which is a very infamous Jimmy Lai, uh, is a billionaire in Hong Kong. And when the pro-democracy protests were starting and the kind of it started turned into riots, he came out very vocally uh, and um, wanted didn't want to go down without really making it publicly known what was on many Hong Kongers' minds um, because many people felt they couldn't express themselves and he felt it was incredibly important to say very loudly on his, because he had a, quite a large Twitter following. Or no, no, he, he his Twitter following exploded as a result of kind of the role he took on of expressing um, what what many people were afraid to say. And that got him in a lot of political hot water. He started being trailed for many weeks, which journalists documented that he was being followed by undercover operatives. And then he was apprehended um, and they knew it was only a matter of time that these people who were following him everywhere would, would shove him into a car as they did. And they took him to the police station. They eventually let him go back home because they can follow him everywhere he's going. Uh, and they, they he's such a high profile figure. There's no chance of him leaving. Although there was worried that um, there was even weird rumors, was there not, that he there was it starts getting conspiracy ish about uh, him planning to get into these uh, um, boxes in a warehouse and being snuck onto a private jet and sneaked out of Hong Kong and blah, blah, blah. There was all these conspiracy about conspiracies about how he might be using his other billionaire friends to sneak him out on private jets and whatnot. It it seems absurd until you realize what happened with Carlos Gosen from Nissan, right? Exactly right. Yeah, exactly right. Exactly right. Um, and a little Where bit, Carlos and, 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 and a little bit of Snowden, a little bit of Snowden as well, because Snowden was in Hong Kong when shit went down, by the way, and realized he needed to get out of there and um ended up in a layover in moscow airport um and that forced down the flight of what was the peruvian um or bolivian leader they forced his private jet down the america forced that jet down by the way essentially do you guys remember that story oh my god that is just wild and so by the way when the belarus um levinchenko forced down that ryanair flight recently over that journalist um, and America's like, oh, my God, the whole world's freaking out. Oh, my God, they forced down that flight that flew over Belarus just to apprehend that journalist. Putin said, oh, yeah, well, how about when you guys forced down the, um, I believe it was Bolivian um, leader, his private jet. Uh, and the way they did it, though, was very interesting. He was leaving, I, I forget where, and he was flying westward over Europe. And then all of a sudden... Um, Portugal and Spain started saying, no, you can't enter our airspace. And they're like, but we need to refuel. And they're like, yeah, too bad. You can't enter our airspace. It's like, but we're supposed to land there just to refuel. Yeah, no, you can't enter both Spain and Portugal. We're like, you got to turn around then and land in Austria, which I recall is where he had to land to refuel. And then the Austrian president had to come and publicly apologize to him. And they, while he landed, they went onto the plane because it was suspected. He left Moscow, by the way. He left Moscow airport. And by the time he was in the airspace about to leave Europe, Spain and Portugal 
for unknown reasons said, no, you can't enter our, air, our airspace. And it so, essentially forced him to land um, unscheduled, which is not a forced landing by a military jet. But nonetheless, it's a forced landing <laughs> because he's running out of fuel. So he landed in Austria. And then while landed, they essentially forced uh, themselves on board to look for Snowden because they thought Snowden had gotten on board at the Moscow airport to go down to South America. You guys remember this? That that is such a wild uh, moment in uh, the Snowden story. But but Snowden was still in the Moscow airport hanging out pre-immigration desk for several weeks. And then Putin finally let him in under the condition that he not you know, politicize anything. And anyway, do you think Snowden is in the Biden's list? Is in what? Biden's list. That's a great question. Um, Clearly, Trump wasn't going to do him any favors, uh, but um, Obama also was uh, no friend of uh, Edward Snowden. And uh, so I I think Ed didn't have any reason for optimism, given the the similarities between Biden and, and Obama with their foreign policies. So, um, I, it's kind of it was kind of a non-issue. They didn't expect, and there wasn't there wasn't a whole lot of hopefulness uh, if Joe went. You know, now that he has one, it's just kind of a continuation. It'll be interesting to see. Uh, well, Snowden's not looking optimistic for the future because the next elections arguably between you know biden and trump so there's again no cause for 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 optimism in the near future anyway um i i think it there there are i I, maybe sanders if he had that might be a stretch but if he were to have one that might be somebody who might welcome snowden back i i I assume i don't know Uh, maybe big bernie supporters who know bernie's policies would know better jeff might know um Anyway, it's all it's all interesting. And but so if you love the politics thing, do go hang follow Jeff on stage. And I imagine Jeff, you have it. You, know, you must must be in your bio. Um, and I think you guys have another upcoming room in just a few hours. Do you not? Yeah, yeah. We have the New York Times chief diplomatic correspondent uh, in just uh, well, it's at one p.m. ET. So what is that? Just over two and a half hours. Um, really been looking forward to this one for a while. And then this Wednesday. We have the former uh, Secretary of Defense, uh, Leon Panetta, coming on. So oh. it's pretty exciting stuff. Um, yeah, yeah. So it's Politics Plus Media 101 is the club, if anyone wants to check it out. Yeah, Le- I'm really excited about it. Leon Panetta, that's one of your best gets yet, that, if not the yeah. best. Yeah. Yeah. And then we have three members of Congress in a row right after him. So <laughs> it's so pretty good the, stuff, and we're going to launch a podcast. Let me, let, me, so, yeah. let, let me say this, folks. If, you, if you're not picking up what Jeff's laying down, is that is as I've predicted? I and this, uh, um, I want to take credit uh, for just predicting your success because it was obvious that it was going to be successful given the talent uh, and the way that you guys do that room. Is it's to me the most important room in Clubhouse and and not not it's not even close because oh, thanks man because it has real world implications um, because. The midterm elections are coming up. The members of Congress, um, Jeff and Justin, are both on the ground professionally and geographically in Washington, D.C. with connections. For better or worse. Yeah. <laughs> and have um, 
have friends of influence in, in town and are able to send invites to incredibly influential people in town, like Leon Panetta, and able to work and function as a very real bridge between um, Capitol Hill and Clubhouse. And they are doing that. And it's starting in, you know, in baby steps, as all things do, but it's quickly escalating, as you just heard. So please do follow and show up with your feet. And when you get in the room, tweet it out and bring your friends. Here's why. Because it is, I'll make another prediction. If we do that together, then uh, when they get, you know, and they have a thousand people in the room, 2,000, 3,000 people in the room, it makes it much more likely that they will continue to get better and better and better and better speakers, which bring more and more audience. And as you can see how this could snowball and help Clubhouse tremendously as an app, because it could become, and I believe should become, um, the format and the place where members of Congress and politicians come to um, hold town hall meetings and, and speak to their constituents and, you know, um, share their views. We could even have a debate potentially. Totally. Uh, yeah. And, and where Democrats and Republicans can actually have civil conversations. That's, that's the idea. And by the way, they've already had uh, in that room some, not some of what, yeah, some of the very best conversations that have ever happened in this app have happened in their room. Notably, many people will fondly remember the the Israeli-Palestinian conversations that you guys. Um, that was incredible. Ran. It was yeah. incredible. Yeah. We had the the top U.S. negotiator in the Middle East for six presidents, and an Israeli official and an Arab American scholar. And it was there were like thirty thousand people tuned in. It was it was great. It was awesome. And we love your rooms here too, Tyler. Yeah. Awesome. No, we're we're doing our little jam over here, you know, in the corner. <laughs> we call it the geeks hanging out at the geek table in the high school lunchroom over here. Um, we ha- we got our own thing going on, um, but yeah, it, it's it's truly inspiring what you're doing. Please support it in any ways that you can. And and to that end, we Sue's uh, who has Anna Marie uh, in Hong Kong. Um, her, uh, Amy Klobuchar is one of her advisors who she said she connected Justin with Amy Klobuchar, but Amy Klobuchar's father just died like the day before uh, they they connected via email. So she said maybe, you know, give it a little more time and then have Justin try and reconnect because Amy Klobuchar was one of the presidential candidates um, in the last election and was very impressive and is also coincidentally leading the kind this charge against big tech at the moment, which, by the way, Let's do this headline. That's that's all going down on Capitol Hill on Wednesday. Uh, so shit is about to hit the fan in a very big way um, on Wednesday for big tech. Uh, maybe, Jeff, maybe you know a little more color on that? Yeah, so there are five bills, uh, some conflict of interest and antitrust bills that are going to be voted on in the House Judiciary Committee. Um, there's some bipartisan consensus. Uh, one of them has already moved in the Senate uh, one is an anti-competition one, which basically says that before you buy a smaller company, you'd have to certify that they don't compete. Really, the, the broader backdrop here is do the antitrust laws in the U.S. and structures, which really date back to Teddy Roosevelt 100 years ago, and physical in, in infrastructure and industries and railroad and oil, is are those sufficient now for the types of entities that you so eloquently describe here as far as what they do in the data space? And that is a broader conversation I would love to have. I do need to jump here in just a minute. We're getting ready for the New York Times room later today. Um, 
But yeah, so essentially these five bills will be up in the House Judiciary Committee um, on Wednesday, and then we'll see where they go. Uh, importantly, they don't really get as much into the privacy space. They're more in the antitrust space or some of the other, you know, regulatory issues. Um, but yeah, it should be should be interesting week on Capitol Hill. Indeed. So stay tuned. Um, I'll do before I jump into my never ending list of headlines and you can send in headlines too. jump up on stage and share them verbally or and you can do both um, tweet them from your Twitter account. Just include our Twitter account so we see them and then we can retweet our, the, the ones that we want to touch on. Just include our Twitter account, which is T-N-A-T-W as part of your tweet. Those are the first letters of tech news around the world as people are already doing. Thank you to uh, Evan and so many others who are doing that as usual. And Cheryl and lots of folks on stage are doing this. And um, you can too. I will get into the best ones in a minute. But before I do, just want to see if anyone on stage is burning with a hot headline they want to share first. Going once. Going twice. I mean, I have a few. I have a few that I'm trying to tweet out to you right now. But uh, unfortunately, I'm having some issues. Okay. <laughs> but um, okay, so uh, one is crypto related. Okay. Uh, the one of the co-founders of Coinbase, um, in continuing the um, the analogy of uh, the time right now in in the crypto and blockchain world, um, they're continuing the analogy to the early days of um, the internet, and uh, he's saying, I think it's Fred Ursum, uh, and he's saying that. Uh, like 95%, I think, of the um, NFTs that have been made, 90% of the NFTs uh, will have no value in three to five years. It's Fred Ursum. Uh, so um, that's his story. And I'm sure that there's going to be a lot of uh, dislike, um, you know, from a lot of the, the people who have been selling NFTs. But I think that's probably right. I mean, I think 90% might be low. So um, there's a lot of reasons I have for that, <laughs> but, uh, but that's, so that's one headline On and that, I, I have, have another I, one. I got a really, I got a similar one, which is that Cheryl shared a few hours ago, interesting headline about crypto and how people, it says people brag about making money with their friends. Like a, a lot of the hype around Bitcoin is, you know, boom, boom, boom. And I'm up on Bitcoin and blah, blah, blah. Now that Bitcoin is going through a bit of a rough moment, um, you're people, you don't hear anyone saying I'm losing money on Bitcoin <laughs> and no doubt some people are. And so the point is, is that, um, because you never hear people when they're losing uh, and usually only when they're gaining out of kind of a guilt and shame, um, uh, uh, the headline from the guardian is I put my life savings in crypto, how a generation of amateurs got, uh, um, kind of hooked on the hype. And, um, it's an interesting it's an interesting deep dive. I just tweeted that one out from Cheryl, but go, go ahead and went through it with your next one, Alexandra. Oh, okay. And that one, I that I, I just talked about in a room last night uh, because so many people are um, are are coming into rooms on Clubhouse and they don't really understand anything about investing or financial statements or anything like that. But they're just they don't want to learn as much as they just want someone to say tell me what to put money in, tell me what to put money in, tell me what to put money in. And that I found ex find extremely frustrating. It's probably the most common question I get um, is, you know, what are you investing in? And, and it, it's, it's not good. I mean, it's a bunch of people who they don't have maybe my same goals, my resources, my, 
uh, my strategy, my, my history, they don't have any of that stuff, my preferences, and, and they're just assuming that what works for me will work for them. Um, so I find it very troubling. This I go, goes back to the end of Glass-Steagall for me. I think all of this is a mess, um, and it could have been saved early on, and it wasn't. So here's the other headline, um, which is about um, the people who are trying to get into um, who are trying to get their, their unemployment, they are doing this, uh, this, um, what do you, God, I'm sorry. I'm so sorry that I'm like not speaking English. Well, it is uh, seven 30 in the morning here, but, um, <laughs> so they're doing this, uh, they're using what they call, um, Apple's facial recognition program to identify people who are getting unemployment. Mm. And, um, the, the, the purpose is because apparently there is a huge amount of fraud in unemployment. That in itself can be a somewhat specious claim because that happens a lot um, and it tends to be a more politically motivated statement than anything else. Um, but so now they're implementing this uh, facial recognition where your face is supposed to match your ID um, and uh, it, a huge number of people somewhere, I think it's over 70% of people are, um, are getting denied. Uh, so I'm not really sure if the error is on the facial recognition side. It didn't say anything like that or whether it is on, um, you know, old IDs or something like that. Or if it's um, it could be racist, because I don't know if you, you know, if you've covered this before, but quite a few facial recognition technologies have a lot of issues um, identifying people who are not white. So um, it's there's a lot of different possibilities. The article, unfortunately, was pretty shallow. So I don't really know more than that. Yeah. And our friend X at Google, who is in the news, she had a big headline of her own in the past 48 hours uh, about how Google is doing a new way to identify color tones and everything. And then I saw that headline. It was kind of widely covered. And then she on Twitter said, Here, here's what I've been working on. And she tweeted out the link to that article, um, sort of claiming credit for that. She's the person leading that development at Google which no doubt she is. So I just pinged her just now to see if she'll join us as she has in the past uh, to give us a little inside scoop all about it because nobody's really interviewed her about it yet. And we could do that right now if and when she jumps in. So please keep an eye out for um, a very uh, attractive black lady by the name of X with a very big hairdo indeed. <laughs> You'll know it when you see it. Um, and just to let somebody jump in, Cheryl or anyone, if you see her jump in, into the room while I'm looking talk, at talk. If I could just mention real quick that um, I posted that article that uh, Alexandria just mentioned about ID.me mm -hmm. um, on, on the Twitter page last night, mm -hmm. um, but it's about ID.me, and they started in California, yep. and now there's like over 30 states that have used them for unemployment um, for identification. So exactly um, right. that's the article. Yeah, and, and because it's – in fact, the – the founder of ID.me was in a room with Nicholas and myself. Nicholas, you'll many of you will know, is kind of the um, blockchain ph philosophical guru of sorts. And um, it was a really interesting conversation that we had with the, both the, the CEO, co-founder, and tech lead of ID.me. And all, because Nicholas is uh, primarily focused on using the blockchain for your own, your own identity purposes, self-sovereign identity. And ID and me is also trying to do digital identity. And then he was saying, yeah, well, you should be doing it on the blockchain and you should be doing it decentralized. They're doing it in a very centralized way. And then <laughs> it started a very interesting conversation, as you can imagine. But um, 
maybe uh, we can control them in as well. And thank you for that, David. I'll, I'll retweet that when I see it. I just uh, on this also on this issue of identification and technology with identification, Poppy shared one a few hours ago that I just retweeted that says uh, ICO watchdog deep. This is from the BBC. ICO watchdog deeply concerned over live facial recognition. The UK Information Commissioner has said she is deeply concerned that live facial recognition may be used, quote unquote, inappropriately, excessively or even recklessly. Elizabeth Denham questioned what would happen if it was combined with social media or other big data. Yeah, that's where shit will get a little crazy, Elizabeth. There is a high bar for uh, live facial recognition where. We shop, socialize, and gather. She wrote new guidance for companies and public organizations using this technology has also been published. As it says, um, that facial recognition technology could be useful, allowing us to unlock our mobile phones or set up bank accounts online. But when people's faces are scanned and processed by algorithms in real time and in public places, the risks to privacy increased, we should be able to take our children to a leisure complex, visit a shopping center, and tour a city to see the sites without having our biometric data collected and analyzed with every step we take, she wrote. And that's where things get tricky because there are cameras everywhere, and it's rather trivial to connect these cameras to facial recognition systems, which will then identify everybody all the time. And you could also identify them by the way they walk, not just their face, as every Hong Konger knows. So, uh, which, by the way, is why they started tearing down the quote unquote smart street lamps that were being installed around Hong Kong, uh, which included 5G antennas, but more notably cameras um, that were suspected to have facial recognition as part of them. Because when people were getting arrested, even though they had masks and they realized the connection that those were people who had passed certain smart, these new smart street lamps, (laughs) um, then the, the citizens it went on their own little mission to decommission these smart street lamps. Uh, Kind of an interesting story that never really picked up a lot of steam and and predates tech news around the world because that was about six, seven months ago. But a lot of other headlines going on about privacy laws comparison. I think, uh, Cheryl, maybe you sent this one in or or maybe David about um, the comparison between Russia and China and the U.S. on their privacy law comparisons. And it's a really interesting comparison of, of those three countries. I'm not going to read it, but we just retweeted it from Tech News Around the World, which is T-N-A-T-W, the first letters of Tech News Around the World. Do follow us on Twitter um, and you can see that article and, and do your own comparison between the, the privacy laws. And even within the U.S., things can change from region to region and all over the world. And it makes it incredible. One of the most challenging new developments as a website like Clubhouse, is maintaining compliance with all of the different um, sort of privacy laws of each country that you go into. And that's where you're now starting to see specialists uh, like accountants. And, you know, once taxes got so complicated that people started needing to hire accountants, now the the privacy laws are now getting um, complicated to a degree where you need new third-party providers and services to help keep you compliant with the ever-changing updates to, you know, user data privacy laws like the GDPR in Europe, for example. That alone can give a lot of companies a lot of headaches, uh, as an example. Um, kind of on a th- keeping on the similar theme here, <clears throat> the FBI, you guys remember this story from about 
four, five, six days ago that the FBI and the Australians had managed to uh, arrest about 800 individuals because they had uh, unknowingly, the FBI and the Australian intelligence community had implanted an app that they were all, all of these, you know, um, criminals were sharing and they thought they were using a very protected encrypted app when in fact it was the FBI's own app that they had seeded into their kind of criminal uh, community. Do you, anyone remember this story? Yes. Yeah, it was yeah. Anon. Yeah, Anon, exactly. Precisely. Good story. Yeah, great story. So there's an update. And the update is uh, from Computer Weekly. And it's a fun little additional backstory that says that the FBI planned this uh, sting against... Um, they, they planned it together with the Australians over drinks. The Australian Federal Police and the FBI came up with the idea over drinks. Build a crypto phone network with a built-in backdoor and sell it to crime gangs around the world. Three years ago, the FBI began planning. I love this so much. It's so good, isn't it? They began planning a sophisticated sting that led to the arrests of 800 sus suspected organized criminals in raids around the world. Police this week carried out hundreds of searches and seizures of firearms, luxury vehicles, and cash in coordinated operations around multiple countries. The targets were organized crime groups, which had placed their trust in an encrypted phone application called Anom to arrange drug deals, kidnappings, and assassinations. Now, an informer working with the FBI sold Anom Android phones on the black market, claiming it offered users highly secure encrypted messaging services. More than 9,000 encrypted devices were in circulation by the time law enforcement agencies pulled the plug on the network one week ago, June 7th, uh, or now two weeks ago. Its, its users had no idea that the NOM had been created by the FBI and that their messages were being collected and analyzed by specialists from the Australian Federal Police in Canberra and the FBI in San Diego. The FBI operation codenamed Trojan Shield has its origins in 2017 when the FBI office in San Diego began investigating the Canadian crypto phone company called Pan Phantom Secure. The investigation revealed that Phantom Secure uh, was supplying secure BlackBerry devices to criminal organizations offering criminal sec secure communications that could be intercepted by law enforcement. And the FBI arrested uh, Ramos in 2018 in an operation with the Australian Federal Police and... Uh, I think you can connect the dots forward as to where the story goes. It's quite long, but uh, we just retweeted this out and thank you to whoever shared it. It's a really interesting. That is, yeah. that is so funny. Do you think that they like deliberately misspelled things, you know, like all the other scam artists? <laughs> yeah. You got to play stupid. Um, um, speaking of playing stupid, here's a fun headline. And thanks to who sent this one in about artificial intelligence has advanced so much that it wrote this article. So here it goes by Jerika Dejumovic, it calls itself as the, as the AI journalist, natural language processing rivals humans skills. I did not write this article. In fact, it was written. It wasn't written by any person. Every sentence you see after this introduction is the works of OpenAI's GPT-3, a powerful language prediction model capable of composing sequences of coherent text. The only thing I did was provide it with topics to write about. I did not even fix its grammar or spelling, according to OpenAI, blah, blah, blah. And then the GPT-3 writes its own article. 
which if you know GPT-3, as uh, Jean-Pierre on stage knows better than anyone in Clubhouse, you know this is of no surprise at all. In fact, anyone who follows GPT-3 even casually knows that this is <laughs> basically what this article is, is journalists just learned about GPT-3 is what this article is really about. <laughs> uh, now, wait for, now wait for GPT-10. Yeah. Um, you know, yeah. Wait, 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 just wait for GPT-4 journalists and then you'll be doing it'll be writing articles for you with headlines like uh, journalists now looking for jobs at, at uh, uh, you know, it's like I, I the don't... golden era of journalism. <laughs> <laughs> Chris is, uh, as usual, dropping a humdinger of a of a pun based on a headline we read about two weeks ago where tech journalists were claiming the golden era of, you know, the, the classic Silicon Valley business models are coming to an end, which is just laughable if you know anything about tech investing, but journalists don't. So that's why they wrote that stupid headline. And so he's saying, yeah, okay, now the, the real golden era of journalism is coming into an end, which is a much more accurate headline um, because GPT-3, is on the verge of being able to write articles better than most um, tech journalists. And GPT-4, no doubt, will write better articles than your average tech journalist. Probably do much better research as well. So uh, stay tuned for that. I, I would love to get a sense. Maybe we can wait for John Pierre, interestingly, isn't with us. But uh, if yeah, he... but there's a, did you read the, the funny statement that GPT-3 wrote himself? The only thing I know how to do is to write about things that I don't know about, which is exactly <laughs> what the journalist is doing. Mm -hmm. <laughs> 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 it, it's already adopting the journalistic uh, behaviors of tech journalists. Yeah, that, that's very convincing indeed. Um, yeah. China, I have uh, a headline. Oh, go ahead, Monica. A one. Yeah, go a ahead. A very cheeky one. Um, so the headline goes like this, that the parliamentary panel in India has turned down Facebook's request for a virtual appearance. It says that they will vaccinate the officials. <laughs> so Facebook had a request uh, that they will have a virtual meeting instead of a physical meeting because of the company's COVID policies. And the, com the committee in India has actually turned down the request of Facebook saying that they can vaccinate the officials. So this is rather cheeky. <laughs> and uh, knowing uh, by where it's coming from, I think this is just associated with the pressure policies and tactics that are being applied, uh, but came out as very funny, uh, specifically coming from India. Uh, so just thought I'll share this. Thank you for that. Um, and by the way, can you just give us a little general update on COVID within India generally uh, and this uh, uh, Delta variation and are, are things getting back in the right track? Because, I, you know, it wasn't that long ago that things were getting very concerning. And now it seems like we haven't the tone in, in, in the voices of our Indian friends who join us every day seem to be a little more positive and optimistic than they used to be. Or am I am I am I reading their voices correctly? Tyler, so you're absolutely right. I think everything is, seems to be back to normal, which also means that we are not following any COVID-appropriate behavior. And it also means that there is no social distancing. So people are actually out and about, which means that uh, the, the uh, person, uh, the doctor, um, Mr. Guleria, who uh, actually is the head of uh, a very premier institution uh, in uh, of a hospital in Delhi, uh, which is called All India Institute of Medical Sciences, has actually warned that the third wave would be coming in six weeks if we continue this way. So unfortunately, 
unfortunately i don't have any positive news to share on this account and i'm actually quite scared because as the um, as the as the country has locked unlocked uh, people have believed that they have conquered covid what they don't understand is that this is probably going to lead to another explosion um the good news however is that the vaccination rates though slow are at least steady i wouldn't say that we are doing a very good job of it because obviously there is a huge amount of vaccine hesitancy as well um right now at least in the big cities we are seeing that uh, the numbers are going up including in the 18 to 44 age segment uh, which is decent news but i think we needed to do a lot more which unfortunately doesn't seem to have gotten done um so after 21st of june everybody in the country should get a free vaccine uh, regardless of the state and any other boundary that separates us so i'm hoping that uh, we should be able to at least get the first dosage uh, in for a majority of the population in case there aren't any other concerns about vac- vaccine specifically there have been rather uh, big rumors on whatsapp as well as on other channels associated with how the vaccine is has components which are um you know related to elements that are not considered um uh, that are considered uh, sacrilege by religious elements uh, and religious society so um there has been a lot of that going on so unfortunately i'm not very happy today knowing uh, the, what i'm reading in the press but yes the numbers definitely and the positivity rate is the lowest it has been in a very very long time mm-hmm. uh, but that means also that people are out and about Cool. That's great to hear. Evan, you just shared three fantastic articles in a row here. Um, the McDonald's one, the Hydrogen Hotel one, and the Texas Power one. Can we blast through these three real quick? Yeah, well, you know, we're, America loves its McDonald's, and we'll be soon talking to robots. So, Yeah, McDonald's is replacing human drive-through attendants with voice AIs. Uh, this is wild and it speaks, by the way, the McDonald's CEO, was it not about a week ago that we read a headline that where the, the, that person said that uh, a $15 minimum wage would really uh, accelerate the drive towards automation at McDonald's. And I made the comment, you, you might remember that McDonald's was a client of my own tech company. And I said, of all the big companies that I worked with, McDonald's was the most impressive to work with and um, understands every aspect of their business down to the my you know, unbelievable detail. And so they know what, how things will change. I mean, there, there's very little unknowns within their operations. Um, I guess, you know, is, is there a room for, for humans at all at McDonald's? I mean, beyond well, the voice, interface, well, robots, etc. You'll, you'll, you might remember if you were uh, with us during that headline that Ellen was on stage from Norway. And I asked Ellen how, how many um, staff are in a normal Norwegian McDonald's. I think she said three, which is about right. Uh, it takes about three people to run a McDonald's in, in the Nordics. They're nearly fully automated in part because the the average salaries uh, and then uh, I believe Poppy shared the headline simultaneously as she's known for doing while we were having the discussion about the salaries uh, and oh and by the way Johan who joins us on stage regularly his daughter apparently has been working at McDonald's for a few years and we tried to calculate her earnings and it's in the ballpark of about $20 an hour that they make there so it's um that's why the Nordic McDonald's are nearly entirely automated in part. So um, except for doing incredibly busy hours, uh, which in, in the Nordics, they're, they're really, you know, big, they're they're really multiply busy. this by every quick serve, every fast food restaurant and has big implications for, you know, low income, low wage labor, labor 
particularly, yeah. you know, with lots of minorities, uh, unfortunately, doing these jobs today, it's uh, it's not good. And right. probably leads us to some kind of UBI concept yeah. eventually. Yeah. So this article that you shared, it says McDonald's is replacing human drive through attendance with AIs. The pilot project is in 10 stores and is 85% accurate. Now, I, with my own technology, did a pilot with McDonald's. And this is how it works with McDonald's. You know, you, they give you a few stores to test. And if it works out well to their benefit, then they start spreading it out. And uh, next thing you know, you're buying your own island in uh, Thailand. But uh, the pilot, uh, as, as if self-driving, as if drive through ordering wasn't frustrating enough already, now we might have a Siri-like AI to contend with, McDonald's just rolled out a voice recognition system at 10 drive throughs in Chicago, which is where they test all of their stuff, by the way. Their head global headquarters is in Chicago, just outside of Chicago. Expanding from, and by the way, most of the company-owned store, they, own, they themselves own a lot of the sh- stores around Chicago. And some of them are specifically kind of shaped around being able to do these tests. And um, so now they've done the 10-story test near the camp, the global headquarters. Uh, and this article is kind of clearly the company who's providing this technology is super excited as they should be. With uh, But I could, you know what I could do is I could call my friends at McDonald's, <laughs> ask how this test went from their perspective. Although there is a quote here uh, from McDonald's CEO where it says, um, so they did the 10 drive-thrus in Chicago, expanding from a solitary test store they launched a few years ago. But when will it come to your neighborhood Golden Arches? Here's the quote. There is a big leap between going from 10 restaurants in Chicago, which is their 10 corporate test stores, to the 14,000 restaurants across the U.S. with an infinite number of promo permutations, menu permutations, dialect permutations, weather. I mean, on and on and on and on. Admitted McDonald's CEO, uh, Chris Kapensky reports nation's restaurants news are we so this that's kind of funny because now clearly the startup who has this ai technology uh is doing a pr piece to promote the fact that they did their mcdonald's pilot test which by the way a lot a lot a lot a lot of companies do mcdonald's mcdonald pilot testing that don't make it mainstream and um and so when already a journalist when uh, uh, Nation's Restaurant News reached out to the McDonald's CEO to get a quote from them about this pilot when the startup contacted Nation's Restaurant News to try and promote this story. The journalist from that publication reached out to McDonald's CEO for a quote, and the McDonald's CEO was like, yeah, it's just a test. <laughs> Calm down, relax. Uh, it's just our 10-store pilot test, and that's kind of funny if you think about what's really going on in this article. Um but the article continues, are we ready for AI? For those of us still dragging our heels on technology, AI helps shoppers, blah, blah, blah. Is it working for McDonald's? Yes and no, it says. The technology is still in its infancy and only about 85% accurate. One in five orders needs a little help from actual humans, though the CEO says that one of the biggest challenges actually has been training the employees to take a step back and not help the AI when it struggles. But the CEO estimates that it might only take five years for a national rollout to happen. Um, How it came about, McDonald's purchased voice technology from the startup called Apprente in 2019. From there, they built their voice assistant. And you can read the rest of the article for yourself. Uh, Interesting, though, and no doubt this will happen. And by the way, Google's own 
voice technology uh, would almost be suit even better <laughs> for this use case as uh, both Google and Facebook continue to make wild improvements to their uh, voice AI technologies. Yeah. Uh, my friend, my friend replied to the tweet six six years to develop this. Meanwhile, their ice cream machines still don't work. So ah, maybe there's some wait. Issues. I have a news article on that on the ice cream machine actually, from, from um, the, but it's a print article. It's not like a. It's not a something I can tweet. Um, yes, I still read those. Um, but first, I wanted to ask uh, Tyler: um, Has there been any backlash in um, Sweden given the number of people who are no longer um, employed? By McDonald's, which is going to be adopted by these other, you know, other fast food restaurants. I don't know if there's been any sort of backlash because um, they're employing many fewer people than I imagine they were even five years ago. And then the second thing really quickly is I think Amanda is in here. Amanda Johnstone. Uh, I just saw that she came in here um, and Amanda is very good friends with X. So uh, oh, can you can you tweet? Uh, can you uh, ping X to come in here, please, Amanda, if you're in here? I think she is. Okay. That's all. So I just wanted to know what the response has been. And I will get you this story um, in a minute if you want. I'll get you the story about that. There are people who apparently wanted to fix the um, the broken ice cream machine and uh, McDonald's was not interested. Like they wanted to right. rip, like, you know, upgrade it. And I thought that was really funny. Yes. The Taylor ice cream machine uh, rabbit hole. And there was a really good video made recently, like a month ago, by that guy who used to work at... Um, Vox, who kind of went independent to make his own YouTube channel. And he does these really fun deep dives, usually around geography issues. But he did the deep dive on the McDonald's ice cream machine. Johnny Harris. Yes, Johnny, Johnny Harris. Harris. That's him. So if you Vox. Google, he does rock. Google Johnny Harris McDonald's ice cream machines and watch his 30-minute video deep dive into the, the, the real rabbit hole. It's a real rabbit. It, I mean, talk about internet rabbit holes. That is one of them. And it's a fun one. And he really spent weeks trying to get down to the bottom, actually doing investigative journalism about what's really going on with these broken um, ice cream machines at McDonald's. And there's much more than meets the eye. And it takes 30 minutes to really even give it a thorough listen. Um, but it's a fun video. Uh, I highly. This is, this is because the uh, the company uh, has a like a lock code Taylor, to, yeah. in order to fix it, right? That's yes. the the story. And Definitely, then I yes. also read somebody hacked it yes. and figured out how to fix them on well, their course. own, and that's why they're working now, right? <laughs> uh, yes. Um, but um, and there's the nature of the corporate owned stores versus the franchise stores, and it, it's a rabbit hole. But could somebody please find that video? And tweet it at me at TNATW so I can retweet it to the audience so that people can do watch that video at their leisure. It's a really fun watch. Um, other I'm on it. I'm on it. Okay. There was, uh, Evan, you had two other really cool stories. The Texas power companies are remotely raising temperatures on residences' smart thermostats. That's wild. What's Brutal. going on? Yeah, basically these uh, intelligent smart homes we all love. If you opt into this particular program, energy efficiency program, they have the right uh, in Texas to uh, raise the temperature based on demand. So, you know, people are waking up in the middle of the night and sweats, <laughs> sweating because it's, you know, they raise your temperature to 80 degrees. So it's, uh, you know, you can't rely necessarily on technology when it comes to these smart home s scenarios. But how is it that the 
the the power companies are yeah remotely rate that sounds like a lawsuit waiting they, to happen they, uh, they you have, have to have green... a smart um, device sorry chris yeah if your home is uh is um... yeah, i mean you you opt into this energy saving program oh, without they give without you... the understanding that uh they can you know, raise they can your... remotely raise <laughs> the electricity company gives you the um the thermostat the nest thermostat or the yeah. you know the smart thermostat and in the in the fine in the fine print it says we have the ability to come in and turn this off to yeah. prevent Terms and blackouts etc <laughs> t's and c's may apply which in texas now is a disaster i mean when it's cold, the, the heat uh, or it goes out. When it's when it's hot, the AC goes out. So this is just uh, disastrous. And, uh, Can we agree now? We can't call. Too, right? <laughs> yeah, <laughs> with, we with, can't. Don't touch my thermostat. Can we agree now? We can't call countries third world countries anymore. Yes, in the US, we shitholes. Third world because <laughs> shitholes. Third world countries because this is uh, some serious quote-unquote third-world country stuff going on in Texas. Uh, yeah, and isn't, doesn't Texas not like the government involved in their uh, backyards? And <laughs> no, lean, a, a lean government, efficient government. Yes. Well, <clears throat> yeah, except when it's lean energy governments uh, that control No, no, they have it. their own power grid. That's how yes? they keep it. Um, <laughs> they keep their, their, and that's why it jacks up whenever there's a problem because they try to keep it artificially low because they're buying directly from the grid. Uh, anyway, there nobody like it's just amazing how many people are like everything's great in Texas when when they live there until something goes wrong. <laughs> and they're like Texas sucks. Uh, I <laughs> will now, say that this. Sorry, Cheryl. And now all the big say... Bitcoin miners are going to move to Texas. <laughs> I was I was gonna say that you know uh, any immigrant child will know what this feels like, and so maybe they're doing this because they know that we're already used to it. I've woken up many a nights in my parents' home where it's like 82 degrees, and my dad's like, don't touch my thermostat. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Happy Father's Day. That's right. Um... My grandmother used to keep her thermostat, though. Like, we all came in the 70s, and my grand um, and I wasn't born yet, but my sister was, and my grandmother kept her thermostat at 65 degrees year-round because she could. <laughs> and so she was very much like, I have one now, don't touch it. So on, on this topic of kind of hot weather uh nbc news and thanks to whoever sent this one in drought stricken communities which is by the way the entire southwest corner of america um push back against data centers as cash strapped cities welcome big tech to build hundreds of million dollar data centers in their backyards critics question the environmental cost watch out folks here it comes Uh, And this is a really interesting tech story uh, because in this story, and we just tweeted it out, thanks to whoever tweeted it in, I just retweeted them so you can see this from NBC News. It's about the Apple date. One of the things they showcase in this story is the the new Apple data center in Mesa, Arizona, which, by the way, um, one of the fastest growing cities in the entire U.S. I believe the second fastest growing city in the entire U.S., even more so than Austin, is Mesa, Arizona, in part due to the Apple data center in Mesa, Arizona, which understandably consumes an incredible amount of electricity, uh, as the story no doubt will mention. And the story starts by saying on on May 17th, the city council of Mesa, Arizona, approved a $800 million development of an enormous data center, a warehouse filled with computers storing all of the photos, documents, and other information we store in the cloud. So the cloud is actually in Mesa, Arizona. 
um, on an arid plot of land in the eastern part of the city. But keeping the rows of powerful computers inside the data center from overheating will require 1.25 million gallons of water each day at a price that Vice Mayor Jen Duff believes is too high. This has been the driest 12 months in the past 126 years, she says, citing data from the National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration. We are on a red alert, and I think data centers are irresponsible uses of our water. Oh, no, she didn't. Duff was the only Mesa City Council member to vote against the development, but she's one of a growing number of people nationwide raising concerns about the proliferation of data centers which guzzle electricity and water while creating relatively few jobs, particularly in drought-stricken parts of the U.S. It goes on and on and on. Um, You can do the deep dive yourself. There's some interesting photos of the Apple data center. And... um, this is really interesting, is it not? Because there was, a, uh, if you watched Bill Maurer's uh, show, he talked about how the all of the almond farmers in California uh, are consuming an incredible amount of water, and California is completely running out of water as well. And should we um, grow almonds uh, for the world? Because California grows eighty percent of the world's almonds, uh, or should we, you know, have water, you know, for more important uses? <laughs> And tell why the, you need to put data centers under the ocean like Microsoft is trialing right now or in Iceland or other places. Yeah. So, well, by the way, TSMC uh, two months ago had the incredibly difficult decision of choosing between because they have an incredibly intense drought themselves in Taiwan. And they had to choose between the, far, the rice farmers or the semiconductor factories, <laughs> which both require lots of water. And they told the farmers, uh, sorry, guys, you'll have to wait till next year. Uh, computer chips win. Um, and in this case, it'll be interesting to see if, uh, what's going to win people taking showers or your photos in the quote unquote cloud in this factory, Apple, uh, iCloud data center in Mesa, Arizona. Uh, it's going to get very interesting and which by the way, all of the big semiconductors and TSMC itself is saying that they are building right here in Mesa, Arizona, strangely, um, These huge semiconductor factories, both Intel and TSMC, are both going to be building multiple massive fabrication facilities around Mesa, Arizona, which has no water. And we were trying to figure out why are they building these in a place with no water, Uh, which they're incredibly water intensive uh, operations. It's going to get crazy, folks. Yeah. And also, you know, to the point of um, Apple's new uh, iOS and their iCloud Plus privacy relay uh, functions, they will be pushing more and more people to switch from anything like uh, you know Google Cloud or Dropbox to use um, Google Cloud, uh, sorry Apple Cloud, and so that will just extend the I don't know, the amount of uh, you know uh, storage that they will need and then the energy that they will use under this whole um, privacy first agenda that they're pushing, and so nobody will really think about the climate um, climate or whatever um, Earth impact. Um, and everyone will be just, uh, you know, uh, switching more and more to Apple because Apple protects your data and then everything will be stored in Arizona. And I don't know, <laughs> that sounds just uh, very dramatic for the Arizona state. Mm-hmm. Um, so there was Evan, you had another interesting one about uh, speaking of saving power, um, the world's first hydrogen hotel. In Japan. You gotta love Japan. You gotta love Japan. Indeed, I mean, amazing country. 
Indeed it is, as Cheryl is in Tokyo herself. And as I used to live not far from her in, in Tokyo for many years, which I, I, I still may end up there at some point. I, I adore it. Um, and this is partly why this headline, which we retweeted from Evan, is a really beautiful photo of this very cutting edge hydrogen hotel in Tokyo and in, in specifically in Kawasaki, which is in the southern part of Tokyo. Um, it says the first hotel on the planet to be powered entirely by waste has been opened by Tokyo Hotels in the Japanese capital. In a breakthrough for sustainable travel, Tokyo Hotels has created the first carbon-neutral hotel in the world to be powered by hydrogen sourced from waste products. Situated in the city of Kawasaki, uh, 15 minutes from central Tokyo, which, by the way, that's still within Tokyo, <laughs> even though it's 50 minutes. I know that sounds far, but it's not in, by Tokyo standards. It's, Tokyo's that big. Um the Kawasaki King Skyfront Tokyo Hotel is 30% powered by hydrogen derived from waste plastics. The remaining 70% of its energy comes from food waste using what they call H2RX technology created by Toshiba. The hotel, the hotel has a hydrogen fuel cell system which transform hydrogen into heat and electrical power without producing carbon emissions. The technology is connected to the hotel via a pipeline, meaning there is a constant high volume supply of hydrogen and the supply chain remains carbon free. And uh, I encourage you to take a look at this very beautiful hotel, incredibly modern, stunning, uh, looks quite Scandinavian, actually. Um, the Kawasaki King Skyfront Hotel. So uh, the, it, it's got a lot more... Uh, text and a lot more photos. Very beautiful hotel. And let's hope that's uh, the beginnings of uh, more to come. And interesting to see that Japan consistently seems to be the um, really leading on the hydrogen uh, approach. Uh, does it not, Chris? Uh, you, you have some familiarity with this. They just, I mean, it's just, it's, it's a common sense kind of, um, you know, energy device. I mean, it's besides being able to be used in fuel cells, you can actually still combust it too. So, you know, internal combustion engines still work on hydrogen. Um, it's it, it the only thing that's supposed to come out of it in combustion is water vapor and maybe some nitrous oxides uh -huh. um, because we, you know, air is not all oxygen. And then in the fuel cell, all that comes out is water. So, you know, it, it, solar is really going to be the main thing that drives hydrogen adoption because you need the power to split the water up. And mm. then once you have it split up, it's really about uh, storing it. So mm. that's my take there. Okay. Um, how about uh, this? Yeah, speaking, speaking, uh, was that Mabwana? Sorry. Yeah, me, yeah. Go ahead. Uh, I found this fascinating because where do you start to see... Uh, in the safari industry in East Africa, a lot of uh, hotels are, you know, are converting to, you know, carbon neutral, uh, starting with uh, obviously powering the, um, the camps that are in the Serengeti or Maasai Mara. But also now we're seeing a lot of the safari vehicles that are obviously incredibly noisy. Toyota, and this is where the Japanese, Japanese link comes in because Toyota obviously is really dominant in Africa for the last you know, number of decades. Um, and, I, and I've been to Japan and, and they're worried about the, transition to, uh, you know, e-mobility and whether they're, they're able to keep up. But a lot of the uh, safari vehicles are Toyota Land Cruisers in Africa, and they're noisy and obviously scare the animals away. So there's an opportunity now for a lot of uh, tour operators to switch to uh, electric and essentially have um, 
you know, uh, closer to having a fully carbon neutral safari. Uh, and of course, during the pandemic, we've seen this sector actually, you know, you know, obviously private planes have been flying into Tanzania. Uh, the, the ultra wealthy are willing to pay a premium for this, right? And so we're going to be seeing like a top down, uh, at least influence. Uh, and they, you know, I'd love if anyone's interested in in uh, in this in, in Africa, I'd love to partner. But um, uh, I think this is going to be an interesting space to watch, you know, in, in tourism, particularly in high-end safaris in Africa. I think it's, that position is already underway. You know, when you add the water reclamation, uh, et cetera, and the Japanese interest in maintaining their, their, their I guess, mobility and uh, um, market shares in Africa, it's going to get very interesting in Africa on this, mm-hmm. this point. Well, you, this, um, this is a great segue because, uh, uh, what, Cheryl, you were going to comment? Yeah, there's an article today that to say that the Jap- uh, there's a Japanese tech to slash the green hydrogen cost by two thirds. Oh, nice! So I just tweeted. Yeah, that's great. Um, but speaking of Africa and in Japan, the U- uh, the Ugandan Olympic team members uh, arrived in Japan today, and that's great because the Tokyo yeah. Olympics <laughs> has been a huge question as to whether or not the Tokyo games were actually ever going to happen. They have already been delayed from 2020. They were supposed to happen in the summer of 2020 due to COVID. They were delayed and they've been, you know, on pins and needles to figure out if they're actually going to have the Tokyo Olympics at all because of COVID. Can they do it? Can they not back and forth? And oh man, what a drama this has evolved into. And now the Ugandan Olympic team members have arrived and they have COVID. So, a member of the Ugandan Olympic team tested positive for the coronavirus upon arrival in Japan and was denied entry to the country. In the first known case of COVID-19 among teams arriving from overseas to the Tokyo Games, government officials said Sunday the team member who tested positive after arriving at Narita Airport outside Tokyo. uh, And by the way, that is really outside Tokyo. It's like three hours outside Tokyo. Uh, that, that's when you're really getting outside Tokyo is in Narita, although unless you stay, take the, uh, the sky train. Chiba. Yeah. yeah, in Chiba. Yep, near Chiba, right? Um, and anyway, the so... The thing is, yeah? this guy actually yeah? had two shots of AstraZeneca. And oh, wow. And negative before he got on board. So that's a strange thing. Yeah. yeah, the eight other members traveled by bus to their host town. Um, and then the Ugandans are the second group of athletes to arrive in, in Japan for the Tokyo Games, um, following the Australian women's softball team. And already we've got one athlete with COVID. This does not look good, <laughs> but um, they weren't allowed in. And I guess the games go on, I guess. Did you notice how they wrote that according to how you read it? Basically, the first they said, oh, well, you know, there's there's been other teams that have come in this is the first one yeah and then at the end it's like well you know there's only been one other team that's been through besides us <laughs> it's kind of funny <laughs> oh man it's gonna be a very interesting um olympic games i mean i've made the the half pun often that the covid was the best uh, real olympics that the world ever had to see if we really want to test how good countries are in a sport uh covid was it was it not um man and and the u.s did not take gold by the way just just for clarity um yeah it's uh let, let's hope for the best on that front as well and uh as speaking of uh, AIs, as we were a minute ago, and keeping it on the Asia theme, Chinese fighter pilots have been training against and training 
uh, AI fighter pilot software. And we covered this one a few days ago, but um, not everyone joins us every day, uh, both time zones. So sometimes we get uh, people who didn't know we covered this, but it's back and and we will recover it because it's just an interesting headline that the chi- China wants everyone to know that they're using uh, AIs to train their fighter pilots, which may or may not be the same fighter pilots that have been um, em- encroaching on Taiwanese airspace uh, in new unprecedented levels in recent days. <laughs> oh, maybe it's or maybe it's just an AI simulation. Who knows uh, what's going on there? But uh, the quality of the computer combat pilots are compared to that of China's elite Golden Helmet Squadron, similar to the U.S. Blue Angels or Thunderbirds, and their ability to learn is impressive. And um, it's simultaneously kind of a flex on uh, uh, the robustness of Chinese AIs and, of course, the fact that they're building up a... um, the Golden Helmet Squadron, which is a uh... so so. What is Tyler? What does this mean for Tom Cruise and his future as a uh, uh, ah? It a means pilot. that the future version of Top Gun will be funded by China, as they are funding most Chinese films these days. And uh, maybe Tom attacks Taiwan. I don't know. It'll be very interesting to see what the <laughs> plot line of that movie is. <laughs> um, wow. Who knows? To be continued. Um, on on the DNA front, which we touched on, uh, before, yeah. Before, I got a quick question before we sure. move on from this subject. Yes, why sir. why do you think China wants to showcase that they're building uh, human capacity to counter a- AI intelligence in in air dynamics and I mean in aerospace? Because they're they're still uh, feeling um, sore after getting their asses kicked on Go uh, due to AlphaGo. And they they, they need oh. to show that uh, <laughs> that's a bad jo- AI joke because the uh... <laughs> well I think it's also you know American pilots are way superior training and, and capability than Chinese pilots and so they're trying to you know consider how to counteract that as well. Um, we started off uh, now in a little over an hour ago talking about uh, I took the twenty three and Me DNA sample to find out if I had inherited my father and grandfather's um, kind of fatalistic uh, heart disease gene. And uh, um, due to 23andMe, I was able to find out that I didn't. And now 23andMe is in the news. And maybe it's because somebody in the audience did a little sleuthing and found an interesting headline. And thanks to whoever sent this in, uh, that 23andMe jumps on the stock market debut as privacy concerns about genetic testing abound, as indeed they should. The company is the latest to go public via a SPAC, and 23andMe, the direct-to-consumer genetic testing company headquartered in Sunnyvale, California. That's not a coincidence uh, that it's the the uh, former wife of Google co-founder uh, Sergey Brin is also a little concerning, uh, that as they have a lot of interest in the medical space and data as well. Um, but that's why it's in Sunnyvale. The company is the latest to go public through a special purpose acquisition company or a SPAC. Uh, the deal closed last week ahead of its NASDAQ listing. Shares of 23andMe opened at $11.13 apiece, rising 20% to a peak of more than $13. And it says, uh, founded in 20, 2006, the company offers customers a full report of their genetic data and predispositions to a variety of health issues ranging from 
the mild to the super scary, including lupus, Alzheimer's, and Hutchinson's disease, all extracted from a few drops of saliva. While genetic testing companies have proliferated over the past 15 years, 23andMe was a pioneer in the field. Uh, although, truthfully, they themselves weren't doing the genetic testing, although they might do now. But when they started, they were simply a front um, and a clever marketing for pre-existing labs. And so when I did this, the lab that uh, actually did my analysis was actually a few blocks from my house. And so I went over to the lab that was a few blocks from my house that was actually doing my saliva um, testing. And 23andMe was simply the the branding and marketing, and they would collect your spit and send it to these labs that were already doing these types of uh, analysis. And then they had built a little beautiful web interface to show you your data because the labs had these, you know, very old computer printout looking results that were very user unfriendly. And 23andMe made a very beautiful shopping cart for you to order and a very beautiful data result email for you to look at your results. Uh, and what a great way to build a very big company off of uh, labs that do very interesting work. And But I, again, I don't know if they have their actual own labs now, but uh, that's how the company started. But it, you, the headline is correct from Fast Company that this is, a, is happening amid privacy concerns about genetic testing abound. Uh, and that's true indeed. And uh, it takes only a little bit of Googling, as I'm sure everyone's going to do when I say this, that China is now genetically testing every single Chinese citizen, specifically Uyghurs, specifically men. Um, and that's not being widely reported. You will find it reported from very reputable sources. And it's interesting to read those articles and somebody's going to find them and tweet them and we'll retweet them and we'll get into the details um, about why our country's starting to DNA test all of their citizens. And by the way, we had, and you can probably guess, uh, one individual who used to join us daily who no longer does because they are now uh, very heavily funded by very influential investors to do this in America. And uh, please keep that name to yourself. I'm sure many of you know who I'm talking Do about. Dr. Danish, I had a question for you. Um, I also heard this is happening at the NA NHS in the UK. Is this correct? I I'm sorry if you don't have any experience there, but I remember hearing it in a room. Yeah, I'm not, I'm not sure about that. Uh, I would be very surprised. But uh, yeah, I have no knowledge of that. And Chris, I'll look into it. So I've been told by people who know that the governments are very interested in acquiring very large databases of not just facial recognition, which they already now have, um, but also the, as I mentioned, China, as usual, in a weird way, I almost commend them because they're quite co uh, 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 open about, you know, what they're doing with the social credit system, with the facial recognition, and now with the genetic testing of every individual, like they're just kind of out and open about it where, other countries are much more, um, you know, covert about doing similar things, even America, by the way. So and I've even said that in interviews, which um, David has read <laughs> that um, the the I have it on good authority that the U.S. is interested in acquiring uh, and building out profiles of individuals uh, with their gen genetic information. 
Um, and you can imagine police, by the way, do DNA testing at crime scenes all the time. And how they're able to apprehend people, of course, is they get a little hair uh, at the crime scene or a little blood. And then they have to go track down the, the people they think that might belong to and somehow get hair from them and, and test them and see if they match. Well, what if they could just get build a DNA database of everybody and then any blood or any hair at any crime scene uh, would be very easy to track down um, in real time. Well, they do this with facial image stuff now in real time. By the way, they do it with thumbprints now in real time, because if you you might remember in middle school, uh, your thumbprints were collected as a child as part of going to school. And in many airports now, when you arrive, including Thailand, they make you do your do both hand full fingerprints of both hands. And it's uh, it's all all of this bio data is getting very interesting indeed, including your iris, including your fingerprints, including your DNA and that your face, your walk. It's like, um, yeah, there are these databases, and governments have a very keen interest in these databases. And they the, hey, the, the, the just to finish the point, and I'll turn it to Harry, is that I've been told that the the there are governments that are. Um, basically providing this as a product they're productizing this and they're using co at this sounds super conspiratorial so i got the music on, on ready here that the a lot of the covid tests that airports are giving on upon arrival just like our ugandan olympic friends at narita when they do their nose swab test they're simultaneously um using it in a uh, they can very easily. Uh, that's more than enough genetic data to do uh, like a 23andMe test. And um, that many governments around the world, when they do all of these um, um, COVID nasal swab tests, are simultaneously doing these as building the, their genetic databases. At, at, in many parts, at the immigration counters of every airport where everybody's, you know, taking off and landing. It's so, far worse than that. Yeah. So I had a couple comments that I wanted to cycle back to for like the crime, the, the crime aspect of it. Okay. I know there, there are a couple, there's a New York Times podcast um, the day, from the Daily on June 6, 2019. It was a series where they went into how an, basically a guy was approached by, uh, um, I think, if I'm remembering correctly, it's been like two years now, an FBI uh, cold case um, department person. And he used a genealogy database to connect people who were like half matches or a quarter match to the DNA that was found in the crime scene. And like they were able to solve a murder case and a couple murder cases um, through that data. And then the other thing, I sent you a private message, Tyler. I found the articles you were looking for, but I don't want to tweet them out myself. I, I, I'll Okay, I'll share them, and thank you for finding them. And welcome, Pre-Rock, who uh, I no doubt might be able to contribute. And it looks like um, oh. there's a couple other folks in the audience who might be relevant as well. Feel free to jump in. So here's an article from the New York oh, Times. Just, Can I mention oh. Just before you do, 2019, they actually, um, the New York Times posted an article that the government was actually testing the immigrants um, that were being detained. And um, the, there were various reasons that were given. One was it was to unite people um, with anybody in the family um, that maybe outside, like that they had data on so they could, they could actually give the, the minors 
to the family, but the most of it was that if any crimes were committed, they'd have them on, on file. Um, but the government has traditionally done a terrible job in terms of maintaining and acquiring DNA. Mm. And you can actually see that in how rape kits are, are treated. There is a seven, 10 year backlog in most jurisdictions. And um, they have a, a problem with matching DNA that's degraded or, or partially lost or things like that. So um, even as they pr try to progress with doing stuff like with uh, DNA testing, the problem that they're having is that um, the government tends to suck at uh, gathering and maintaining um, uh, the samples that are um, fragile. Mm. So. Mm. I will say yeah. one, one last thing, Tyler, before we move on, I apologize. But uh, one thing that we spoke about maybe a week ago was about the deal of Babylon Health. And Chris brought this up about NHS. Babylon is a UK-based startup that is now making a huge move in the U.S. And um, I don't know if people saw the news around Palantir now being backing their uh, SPAC. And so talking about, you know, people's data filtering into governments, there is no company out there that is most more closely connected to government entities and is now betting on health. I wonder why. Tyler, if I can mention something about this. Um, I, I used to manage a division of Quest Diagnostics back in 2003 to 5, and uh, we worked in this space quite a bit. And um, there is a couple of things that were mentioned. One, the NHS does does have a program. There was, uh, there's a conference that's held every year, the Executive Laboratory War College, and um, it's leading pathologists and lab managers from around the world that come to that. And the head of the NHS program in 2014 came and spoke but the NH NHS uh, genomic uh, medicine, I think it's genomic medicine program, they, they have a mission to uh, test all 55, whole genome testing on all 55 million residents of the UK. And, um, you know, so there is a move for that. Um, also, the crime database that was mentioned is, the, is called GED Match, GED Match. And that's the one that police departments use. And there's data that goes in there from Ancestry, 23andMe and other programs that go into that database and, and police use that. So they are tracking potential criminals through um, commonly used and they have licenses with 23andMe and others to get that data. So that's fairly, um, fairly well established. One thing in the U.S., there's a law in the U.S. called the GINA Act, and it's the Genomic Information Non-Discrimination Act. Um, so there is a specific law precluding the use of genomic testing for discrimination in the U.S., but there's a lot of the testing agencies, uh, Quest and LabCorp included, have been trying to push and get that changed. So um, just some background on that. Thanks. Cool. Um, so somebody did send in the New York Times article to confirm what I said a moment ago um, that it, the headline is, and I'm going to retweet it right now, China is collecting DNA from tens of millions of men and boys uh, using U.S. equipment. Even children are pressed into giving blood samples to build a sweeping genetic database that will add to Beijing's growing surveillance capabilities, raising questions about abuse and privacy. And that's from the New York Times. That ain't no, that ain't no blog, y'all. That's a real news organization that stakes <laughs> their reputation on this stuff. So um, they don't always get everything right, but uh, they ain't going to say something like that without having the receipts. So I tweeted that out so you can look up that one. And then the, what was the other one um, from CBS News? China's push to control America's healthcare future. For the um, 
And there's a, a video. Uh, this is essentially a video, but the text description says, for all the polarization that grips Washington, here's a source of rare consensus, the emerging threat of China's push to acquire our healthcare data, including the DNA of American citizens. Well, this is starting to sound like what I said about 10 minutes ago, that there's governments trying to get uh, <laughs> building DNA data. Anyway. U.S. officials tell us the communist regime's aggressive collection of our most personal information presents a danger both to national security and our economy. As alarm bells ring across agencies, parties, and presidential administrations, different branches of our government have taken action over the past year to stem the tide of our medical data flowing to China. The quest to control our biodata and in turn control healthcare's future has become the new space race. With more than the national pride in the balance, our investigation begins with an unsolicited and surprising proposal that came from overseas at the onset of the COVID crisis, where it says early last March, the state of Washington was the site of the first major coronavirus outbreak in the U.S. As COVID rates and the need for testing were spiking, BGI Group, the world's largest biotech firm, a global giant based in China, approached the state of Washington with an enticing offer you can just imagine what it might be. A little uh, COVID, free COVID tests, perhaps? For a little, all we need is a little nasal swab. That's all. What, 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 what could we possibly do with that? No, no, nothing to worry about, folks. Um, yes, thank you. Um, I'm going to tweet that link out, and you can watch that video for yourself. Again, that's from CBS News, one of America's longest historied um, news outlets. Uh, so quite concerning development there. I've got a shit ton of articles to get through. Um, let me see if I have any on the um, medical front while we're on that theme for one second. Well, there is a, a bio uh, med tech article that many people are sharing about these uh, genetic thumbs or not genetic, uh, bio augmented thumbs that you, it's a, it's a, it's a robotic thumb that you put on. So now you have two thumbs, one on each side of your hand. And um, it looks very cool. You can see it. And what what enables it is kind of like a watch that you wear that connects to the thumb. And it can read the tendons in your wrist as you try to control it. And you can teach this thumb um, to function in a very cool way. So that uh, once they even show somebody playing guitar with it and you... You know, this is our way of fighting back uh, against the robots. If you can't beat them, join them. So thank you to whoever sent that one in. Um, on the kind of uh, international political front, Putin, and, and this is about the hackers, uh, Putin says Russia would accept conditional handover of cyber criminals to the U.S. And this is a huge issue, uh, which no doubt came up, uh, and we know it came up during Joe Biden's meeting with President Putin in Geneva last week on Wednesday. And so the article says President Vladimir Putin has said Russia would be ready to hand over cyber criminals to the U.S. if Washington did the same for Moscow and the two powers reached an agreement to that effect. Putin made the comments in an interview that aired in excerpts on state television on Sunday um, ahead of uh, the summit with U.S. presidential Joe Biden in Geneva ties between the powers are badly strained over an array of issues. The Russian leader said he expected the Geneva meeting to help establish bilateral dialogue. Putin also praised Biden for having shown professionalism. The White House said Biden will bring up ransomware attacks and Russia linked hacking group 
was behind the attack. The U.S. source familiar with the matter said, and you can read this article for yourself from the Tech News Twitter account at TNATW. And thank you to um, who was that one? Uh, Jivan for sending that one in. Um, looks like Florian found a really interesting one about uh, AIs uh, being used in, in war. And the headline is, you go to war with the data you have. Uh, next generation AI for national security. AI intelligence is the most powerful technology in generations with the potential to impact U.S. security, welfare, and global leadership. U.S. national security agencies must develop and integrate AI-enabled capabilities to compete and defend in the AI era. era. However, standard methods and AI technologies fall short and this is a is the article is quite lengthy, and it's an incredibly interesting point in conversation. In that, Israel said that uh, in their latest exchanges uh, around Gaza, that they were their targets were AI driven in the, in determining the selection of targets. They even claimed it was the quote unquote the first AI war of sorts. And then you had even. Um, Eric Schmidt, who was, you know, well known as the chairman of Google and previously the CEO of Google, now telling Capitol Hill that America must uh, ramp up its AIs because China is, you know, accelerating in their AI developments and that the future of wars will be kind of AI driven and, and the, your, your um, abilities within AI will determine the outcomes of these things. And it gets very interesting indeed. Uh, in ways that you just don't assume unless you read articles like this. So thank you, Florian, for that one. Um, I'll pause there uh, to see if there's uh, others uh, that people want to share. Uh, one last one while we're on the kind of international front. Uh, another New York Times article about the inside the deadly serious world of esports in South Korea. And each year, thousands of young South Koreans compete to join pro esports teams, but only a few make it. An American company in Seoul wants to help more um, young gamers find jobs. And it's indeed esports is sweeping Asia in a way that's hard to imagine in the US, uh, where they play in incredibly large arenas, even bigger than the arenas used by traditional sports. And the fan bases of these and the dollars involved are getting bigger than. Uh, that of traditional sports uh, like football and soccer and baseball. So it's um, it's a, an incredibly big trend and worth noting because there's incredible amounts of money involved and it's still the very early days of, of this kind of uh, booming um, new esports phenomena. So I'll pause there. See anyone on stage want to jump in with something hot? Just on the esports phenomena, hopefully we can like do a deep dive on that as well for Asia. Yeah, um, I have a friend who works in this space. Yeah, I, I do too. My friend Rickard Steiber from MTG. Interestingly, MTG is one of the Nordic's leading media houses, a meeting conglomerates, Modern Times Group. And the big media companies are all struggling to keep themselves relevant and financially viable. Rickard, being a real pioneer, he led Google in Europe, by the way, and then went over to MTG Group uh, to save that uh, sinking ship, I say with affection. And so he thought the smart thing to do would be to buy up all of the big esports companies, which he did, uh, which has gone very well for them. <laughs> and uh, I could bring in Rickard now. He, after he left MTG, he went over to run HTC Vive, the VR company. HD, uh, HTC is a huge uh, consumer electronics company based out of Taiwan. 
and he ran Vive, the VR uh, goggles for HTC. So he, he's a really interesting cat. Uh, I'll make sure he jumps in at some point, uh, not on Father's Day, though. Um, let's see. Uh, there's a, a really interesting article somebody sent in from Bloomberg about did the pandemic kill the restaurant menu, uh, which I tweeted out. Uh, and it says that many restaurants dropped printed menus during the pandemic because of, you know, uh, COVID on menus in favor of QR codes, sending diners to online ordering platforms using their phones and their apps. This is especially true in Thailand, by the way, which if Lakeisha's on stage can confirm. Um, Thailand switched from being all about cash into being cashless as a, uh, for the same reasons. And everything's being done. You can even pay at any restaurant by scanning the QR code on their cash register and just uh, wiring, you know, kind of sending the money over digitally. But this article uh, from Bloomberg is all about how even menus are now replaced by QR codes in a very similar way where you're on your table at any restaurant. There's a QR code that you scan and it brings the menu up on your phone. And that's actually kind of genius when you stop to think about it. Um, I wonder if it'll mean uh, adoption of QR codes in America because I'm like... Barely use them here versus other places. Yeah, uh, yeah. Asia has been leading on QR for a long time, and it's it's it, this is truly funny to think about as one of you know geeks like Evan, my, Chris, and myself, those of us who have been around the block for more than a minute. Um, the QR code thing, especially in America, has been a head scratcher for decades. Actually, uh, this is not a new technology by any means, and you know it was always wondered like. How, when and how will this ever take off? <laughs> it's cool, but it's one of those technologies that was searching for a use case for over a decade. And co strangely, it uh, it was COVID that really drove kind of adoption uh, in new markets. Um, and it'll be curious to see if it sticks. Um, it, can I can I put in my two cents on do, this particular? Please one? do, Chris. Yeah, I think really what drove it in the States is that Apple finally, you know, built it into the photo oh, yes. app. Yep. So now if you just point your camera at any Q QR code, um, it will like, you know, pop up a thing saying, open this in Safari, open this app, et cetera. So I, I in general, I think, you know, and I'm, I'm an Apple fanboy, I'll admit it. Um, because Apple's really for like the rest of us, <laughs> you know, the non-technical geek people. Um, and I, I'm saying this, that I ride both sides of it. Um, that was what I was looking for. I don't want to download another app for QR. Like you could have always done it from day one with the iPhone, but you had to go download an app, you know, yada, yada, yada. But now that things are built in, it's, it's much like Apple pay, you know, all these, um, phones have had NFC for, you know, since like iPhone five and, uh, no one knew how Apple was going to use the near field communication that's RFID on the iPhone. And then once they adopted Apple pay, you know, we started getting it, but now I think they're going to start really using um, RFID in other ways, too, where like maybe touching things and, you know, checking out and stuff like that. So it's interesting. It really and now, is. Chris, we got to get ready for malicious QR codes, which will be the big wave. Oh, shit. Uh, you just let the yeah, cat out of the bag. Yeah, you're, you're exactly I'm right, not... though. And by the way, most non-geeks, uh, this is news to them. But um, essentially, hackers... Uh, are all about getting you to click on links via email or SMSs and whatnot. QRs are essentially links. So if you scan a malicious QR code, it will send you to a website that will 
download uh, viruses onto your devices. And so, uh, and by the way, QR codes can be disguised to not look like QR codes. They can look like normal images uh, even. So you could even accidentally point your camera, well, almost accidentally point your camera at something. It'll, as, as you know, when you use your camera app, it says, you know, do you want to go to this website? And if you say yes, then you might accidentally download some stuff. It's a really interesting point. Um, Dr. Danish, you just shared a really interesting one about space agencies that are learning how to make food on Mars. Yeah, you know, this is kind of interesting, especially uh, given that um, this is probably one of the biggest, when you talk to space and longevity folks, this is probably one of the biggest challenges we have about truly uh, thinking about next steps and being a multiplanetary species. What was interesting to, to me about this, so NASA and the German Space Agency are investing in space agricultural projects, uh, you know, places, you know, uh, they test in places like Antarctica and other places like that. But what's really interesting is kind of the full circle connection. So uh, I'm not sure if uh, we've talked about Square Roots, which is a company that was formed. Uh, That's that Elon's brother. By- yeah, Kimball yeah. Musk. Kimball. Um, it's a uh, you know a vertical farming system uh, platform. Boulder, Colorado. Exactly, and so you know they're working on that. There's another group that's working on autonomous greenhouses, and it's just it's fascinating how something that seemed like a a remote possibility now there are entire multi billion dollar industries around it, and I think perhaps vertical farming could be a solution for some of our own challenges here on Earth. But uh, what's really interesting about this is that how much money is being pumped in by NASA uh, and uh, other uh, space organizations and how this entire industry is getting privatized. Uh, Because uh, to give you some context of how much we're talking about, Bowery Farming just, you know, uh, announced a $300 million funding round this June. um, And it was valued at $2.3 billion. By the way, Bowery Farming is a company that's focused on vertical farming and vertical farming primarily most of their long-term vision is around space kimball musk as as we were talking about with square roots um uh you know uh that's another big name in the space uh aero farms has built a hundred and thirty six thousand square foot farm in virginia uh, that is set to open in 2022 we're seeing this happen and i think ag tech was just the precursor to this entire industry that's going to start developing as we start getting closer and closer to terraforming other uh, other uh, planets. So this is just the food on food on Mars is, is potentially becoming a reality. That was my, my favorite scene from The Martian with Matt Damon when he was growing potatoes. And, I think that's exactly. the <laughs> and, and, and we may not and I'm not sure who realize if we all realize this, because that's what's great about this room is you're sometimes in here with people. Uh, that are, this is their jam, but Florina, this is like what she does. Yes, uh, it she's is. in deep space uh, food development. So it's just one of those amazing things where you know things you think that are total pipe dreams are now just becoming reality. Oh no, like very quickly. And and she and she's got very deep pockets to fund people working on that. By the way, um, so she's normally here all the time. In fact, I was just DMing with her uh, less than an hour ago. She says her daughter took her phone and accidentally uh, joined our room here when we started. She says she can't participate today as she's prepping uh, Father's Day shenanigans for the husband. <laughs> but normally she's... she's Tyler, yeah. yeah. Since we're in the subject of the food and restaurant, uh-huh. so we um, should add the cloud kitchen is going to change the entire uh, restaurant industry. Because oh, for sure. 
started with your <laughs> common friend, uh, yeah, Travis. Yep. Um, I know the company started in 2016, and one of my friends joined 2018 or so. Um, he was employee number 60, and now they have 3,000 people. And I asked him about valuation. I hope I'm not releasing anything that is not public. Um, they're at 22 billion. So I, I think they're going to change the entire restaurant industry. And going back to the food, I think COVID has helped us to understand how valuable it is to have a good immune system. And immune system comes from good nutrition. So that's it. Um, and also one thing to add about 23andMe, uh, the Google started at the garage of the founder of 23andMe. So that's just a little bit of the history. Well, and, and I would like to uh, include something here. And David, by the way, I heard you loud and clear. I heard you loud and clear, and I hope others did as well. So I just wanted you to know that. Um, what I'm at liberty to tell you is that there, there isn't just a uh, agricultural type program in the works on Mars. There is an aqua cultural program as well. And it's a lot further along than you may think, than you may believe. Now, remember when the internet was finally released to the general public, the military had it for over 60 years. We're dealing with uh, a much more sophisticated type of uh, series of programs. So, of course, then, when you're talking about terraforming entire planets or whatnot, they're not, they're not going to uh, readily release this information. Now, we've been partnered with NASA for about 15 years. Um, we've licensed several of their technologies several of JPL's technologies and so on and so forth. And I, I'm not sure uh, who the gentleman was that, that spoke about two minutes ago that, um, well, basically what, what, what you're hearing is correct. It's just that the programs are a lot further along than we are being told. And you're right, there are certain companies out here, and, and I'm watching what I'm saying very carefully. Uh, some of these companies that you may have heard of are literally attempting to corner the market before the, before the general public catches on to what the market uh, that I'm speaking about in, entails, what, what, what all technology is involved. So basically, once we started to see that about 10 years ago, we started um, working with JPL and, and uh, NIH and, and other organizations to basically license some of the technologies that they've had on the shelf. And initially, they thought it was a terrible idea until we showed them how we could generate literally tens of billions of dollars by applying their technologies commercially. Now, all of a sudden, everybody's on board. And I've been in some very strange meetings over the last month. And I just, just understand that, <laughs> that the, the, the agenda is a lot further along 
than you may than you may understand right now. But keep your mind open, keep your eyes open, keep keep researching. And any you know, that's the only thing I could really say without going too far. So well, Will, any any comment on these flying objects that people that these, these Navy pilots are seeing off the coast? <laughs> Look. I won't get started on that. <laughs> okay. For, we'll save not that for today. next time. Right, thank you. Sure. No. Hey, Tyler. Yes. Did you see the, uh, re- oh gosh, I'm, there's a feedback. Um, did you see the retweet that um, I set out? I haven't been in the room the last couple of days, but I wasn't sure if uh, how many people saw the little sneak peek of back channel on Friday afternoon. And if you guys had discussed that at all. No, what is it? Because I know we're going to be going into the... Uh, uh, town hall in a few minutes, and I thought I'd give you. Uh, we could chat about that just before going in. Okay. I'm sure, they'll address is, it. Is that in eight minutes? Yeah. Oh my God, we got a lot of headlines to do in eight minutes. Go ahead. Yeah. So, um, for anybody who wasn't and didn't see it, I um, I tweeted, I retweeted some um, something that happened Friday afternoon, and I know Evan, I think you saw it as well. So around four o'clock or something on Friday afternoon, somebody. So it was it was almost kind of funny like maybe they did it as a little sneak peek um a whole bunch of people who were on clubhouse and possibly modding rooms at the time there was a quick update that all of a sudden you saw something that and if you see if tyler if you want to um retweet what i tweeted at tech news around the world Mm -hmm. um all of a sudden your screen said back channel enabled i saw that yeah and then all of a sudden at the bottom of your screen if you made your, you know, like if, as we're all looking at our screens, if you can make your screen go down so that you're not looking at the room you're in, at the bottom of the screen, um, what you normally see is there's this the nine dots on the right hand side on an iOS device at least. Those nine dots moved to the left hand side, and on the right hand side was like a little paper airplane. And what you normally see as like, um, sorry. Uh, so everything from the right-hand side moved to the left-hand side. And if you hit the paper airplane, a back channel moved, um, opened up on the right-hand side. So it only lasted for under five minutes. But those of us who saw it, everybody was like all excited, like, what's going on? It didn't work. But all of a sudden, as quickly as it was enabled, it went away. And a bunch of rooms opened up. Everyone talked about it for hours on end. Like, what's this? What's going on? What's going on? Um, I had a little hold on. chat. Hold on. Twitter. Hold on. Yeah. Tina, hold on. So what you're saying is the UFOs yeah. are now in our apps. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. So um, we had, I had a little uh, Twitter chat with Samea. I always butcher her last name, yeah. but she's rather prevalent. Um, yes. Um, about possibly it was sort of an um, homage to the, HBO Max people that had an intern that pushed accidentally some code and maybe they were sort of doing that a little bit, but maybe it was a sneak peek and maybe we'll hear a little bit more in, in the uh, town hall when we go into it yeah. in the next couple okay. of minutes. So, and, and while let's, let's burn through some headlines real fast before that happens. Uh, hey, Tyler, could I just could yeah, comment go, real quickly? On go, that? John, go. Yeah. I, yeah. I was on those calls Friday afternoon when people discovered it and it was a, it was a melee of conspiracy theories and I don't understand why 
in an app that people have gravitated to because the approaches they're taking are generally looking at uh, making the world a safer place to engage in conversation, uh, that their accidental or beta testing of a new capability immediately spawned all kinds of conspiracy theories. I, can somebody explain that to me? The aliens have landed and they're among us. Um, I don't think there's any conspiracy. It seems just like somebody pushed it out to prod instead of uh, stage. Yeah, not just what right. Happens, but... I, I've seen that happen in so many different contexts so many times. I think somebody just accidentally picked the wrong environment and clicked on it. Mm-hmm. Well, well, could I say something about this? And I'm going to speak this in code. And I pray that you are like, subconsciously like, aware. Like JavaScript? What kind of code? <laughs> I like that. <laughs> I like that. But I mean, think about it this way. You you've heard about the DNA databases. What we haven't been hearing about are the frequency code databases. I'm going to say that again. We haven't been told about the frequency code databases. Some of you like David, for example, I'm quite sure you know what frequency codes are. Uh, and so on and so forth. Now, when it comes to storing that What's information... What's the frequency code? Sorry. Yeah, what is a frequency code? I have no idea either. Okay. Well, basically, a frequency code is um, the vibrational resonance of, let's just say, for example, a particular person. So in metaphysics, um, what you're talking about are basically the home frequency, as, as they would call it. So you have frequency codes, liquid crystals, redox signaling, so on and so forth, telomeres, so on and so forth. Now, when it comes to storing information, the government, large corporations, they, especially when you get down to nanoscale, they're thinking, okay, we want to store as much information in as little space possible. So instead of just merely storing physical DNA, they are storing frequency frequency codes now, okay? And I can't go too much further into it, but if you start looking into the advanced biophysical sciences and uh, explanations of what frequency codes are, uh, if you want to get to the meat and potatoes, I mean, we can go further than the layman type explanation that I that I does just that, gave does that include the IRS or the, are they stealing my frequency codes? Yeah, that'd be that'd be fun. That'd be fun to go there. Wait, further, there yeah, is cool. there is a frequency code database. <laughs> Legit, there is. And well, it is I all mean, the I, list of the frequencies that are available that are governed by the FCC. That's like the the frequencies like the, <laughs> in the background. Yeah, the red, red, yeah, the radio spectrum database. Yeah, we have one of those in the UK too. Yeah, exactly. Okay, I got them. Oh, I got yeah, We got a couple off, minutes. Off. Ben, you do your Tesla headline, Model Three. You... Oh yeah, so cool. In the UK, the some of the emergency services are thinking of using uh, Model Threes, the car I drive, uh, as as emergency vehicles, which would be which would be cool because police cars are shit. And uh, it'd be better if they were electric, quieter, faster, and all the rest of it. Yeah. As long as people remember to plug them in when they get back to the station so they're not flat when you need them, they'll be cool. And there's a really beautiful photo of a, li- uh, a live one uh, that you can see that we just tweeted out. Thank you for that, Ben. Uh, El Pollo Loco begins selling and test, or sorry, begins testing drone deliveries. And you can see the photo of that as well. And thank you to who sent it in. El Pollo Loco is partnering with Tel Aviv based drone startup called Flytrex for the test. 
which will start in Southern California during the pilot. A select number of chains of of local reward members in that market will be surprised with one of the first deliveries of the Air Loco drone. And similar to like I was saying about the McDonald's test, no doubt McDonald's is going to jump into testing air drone deliveries soon as well. And um, yeah, Google's making a lot of progress with that in Helsinki and Australia and a few other markets. And it seems like the drone thing is about to take off. Oh, did I make that pun out loud? I'm sorry. Um, The (laughs) uh, Central Bank of Nigeria could launch pilot digital cryptocurrencies by the end of the year. That's the latest update on that. We're all aware that about 80% of central banks in the world are exploring the possibility of issuing central bank digital currencies. And Nigeria cannot be left behind, Mohammed said. On June 10th, uh, at a virtual briefing with bankers, if you have a central bank digital currency that is backed by the government, then people can make transactions online without fear of any default, Mohammed said. And uh, Bungie begins selling its official Destiny toaster. It's truly time to get that bread. Uh, Alexandra sent this one in. Um, what What is so interesting about this toaster, Alexandra? <laughs> There's nothing. It's just they're branding everything now with the... Uh... Um, I, I can't believe they actually made it a, a news story, but um, so this game is now they have a um, they have there there's an Xbox refrigerator, and uh, and then there's the Destiny toaster, and um, and apparently the toaster isn't great, <laughs> but it's selling well. Um, it's like a two slice toaster, and they're like it doesn't really compare to any sort of modern toaster, but um, yeah. So now you can get a uh, game appliances. Um, at a, I don't know, online store near you. So it's just a very silly thing that they're doing. All righty. Well, the uh, Clubhouse Town Hall meeting is about to start, but just want to say a happy Father's Day to everybody. Hope you're having a lovely weekend and a lovely uh, rest of your Sunday. And um, hopefully see you back here tomorrow. Click on the title, follow the room, follow the Twitter account, which is also you'll see by clicking on the title of this room. And we will see you next week. Have a wonderful uh, rest of your day, everybody. Thank you. Thanks, Tyler. Yeah, thank you, everybody. Thanks, Tyler. Research frequency codes. Oh, we will. Frequency codes. Oh, we will. I was good.